that latest trade dispute with China is about solar cells? Think again. Hi, everybody. I'm Bob Bowman, Managing Editor of Supply Chain Brain, and this is the Supply Chain Brain Podcast. So China has slapped a new tariff on solar panel materials from the U.S., but that's not the real story. Behind that action lies a twisted tale of mutual rock-throwing by the U.S. and China for what each perceives to be unfair treatment of their exports. And digging even deeper, we find a Byzantine system deployed by the U.S. Commerce Department to figure out whether foreign companies are dumping their products here. You might be surprised to learn how it works, or doesn't. It's an Alice in Wonderland world of unintended consequences. So says my guest today, trial attorney William Perry of the law firm of Dorsey and Whitney. He's going to give us the lowdown on the often bizarre methods used by the Commerce Department to supposedly protect our nation from cheap imports. So here is my conversation with William Perry. William Perry, welcome to the program. Thank you very much. What is the situation with regard to solar panel materials that the United States is trying to sell in China? What's going on right now? Well, I think the important thing, and it comes from one of your pre-questions, quote-unquote, are they really dumping? You've got to understand something that the Commerce Department doesn't really determine, although it has a determination of dumping. Um, dumping is generally defined as selling at prices in the U.S. market below prices in the home market, sometimes prices to third countries, or below the fully allocated cost of production. The Commerce Department, however, refuses to use actual prices and costs in China to determine whether a company is dumping because it considers China to be a non-market economy country. Um, every country in the world, including Iran, is considered a market economy. But if you're a former communist country, such as Vietnam or China, you're considered a non-market economy. And so commerce basically constructs a cost. It uses, um, 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 it takes the U.S. prices to the United States by the Chinese entity, but then it constructs a cost by using consumption factors and values or surrogate values from another country. Um, in the solar cells case in the United States, it was really um, uh, the, the big fight wasn't over prices in the United States. The big fight at the Commerce Department was whether to use India or Thailand as the surrogate country. And so um, um, this is something to understand. So in 95% of the cases, in fact, in, in, if it's a case against China, in 100% of the cases, by the Commerce Department's own methodology, it must find dumping. Certain companies may get zeros and get, get out of the case, but the Commerce Department's methodology results in 100% affirmative dumping determination. So it's preordained in, in a way. It's preordained. It is preordained, exactly. And so it's only when you take it in this context that you start to understand what's really going on here. And um, you, what I also understand is that when the solar cells case was actually brought in the United States, which is about two years ago, uh, uh, Senator Ron Wyden, who's chairman of the Subcommittee on Trade Senate Finance Committee, and is from Oregon. And Sol Solar World, uh, the big petitioner, is from Oregon. 
So um, uh, Senator Wyden, because this is a constituent, st- sat right, stood right next to Solar World as they declared this war on China on solar cells. What I don't think Senator Wyden realized is that uh, at that point in time there was four billion dollars worth of solar cells coming in from China, but there was two billion dollars of U.S. produced polysilicon going to China, and um, one of the biggest producers is REC Silicon right here in Moses Lake, Washington. Um, uh, the Chinese case on polysilicon is a result of an article in the Seattle Times. It's on my blog, uschinatradewar.com. You can find the article. And REC Silicon announced that they were deferring a billion-dollar investment into Washington, into can, the state of Washington and Moses Lake. Can I, can I stop you there and ask you to explain to us about polysilicon and how it fits into the whole solar panel materials world? Okay. Polysilicon is used to make the wafers, which are the the sub, and I I, I know just a little bit about this, but it's the primary raw material used to produce the wafer, which is the basis for the solar cell. And the United States and Europe, but the United States, and REC Silicon here in Moses Lake, I've been told, is the most efficient producer of uh, polysilicon in the world and produces a much higher quality than is produced in China. And it's a specific, I was told by uh, one consultant, that what happens with the uh, REC silicon is it's made kind of like in little balls, and it fits better than the normal pots of polysilicon. So because it wants to, it really has a tremendous impact on how they form the cells. And thus, the, China, the U.S. material is much better quality in, uh, um, uh, much, um, and lower price because it's a very efficient producer. But I'm fascinated by this idea that you say that the formula that the Commerce Department uses pretty much just dictates that anti-dumping will be found in the case of these Chinese products entering the United States. And I'm wondering, is there a solution or a remedy to that? Would you propose a different type of formula that would be more realistic and would not necessarily guarantee a finding before a finding is e- before an investigation is even launched? Well, um we have, in fact, uh, just two days ago, I've been working with a bunch of U.S. importers and with APCO, which is one of the most powerful PR lobbying groups in Washington, D.C., to, group, uh, to create a group called the Import Alliance for America. And the importers are getting together because uh, um, um, they, under U.S. anti-dumping and countervailing duty laws, it's very important to understand that um, Chinese companies do not pay dumping duties. U.S. importers pay dumping duties. So U.S. companies that import products into the United States are the ones that are liable for these duties, and they're retroactively liable. So what we've done is formed, and retroactively liable means that if in a review investigation the rate goes up, um, you, the importer of record, are retroactively liable for the difference plus interest. Uh, That's the way the U.S. anti-dumping and countervailing duty law works. So, for instance, in a recent case um, involving glycine, um, uh, the uh, originally commerce used India as a surrogate country. The rate was 51%, but they could continue to export with that rate. Um, and then um, commerce said, no, we're going to switch uh, countries. And uh, they switched to Indonesia, and one of the key raw material inputs was not produced in Indonesia. So the rate went to 451%. And the U.S. importer owes a difference plus interest to the U.S. Customs Service. So you're arguing, that, you're arguing that the United States companies suffer as much, if not more, as a result of these U.S. Commerce Department findings than any foreign supplier uh, might be suffering. Exactly. 
And so if you take a look at my blog, uschinatradewar.com, you'll find out that. And this is the result why we've created this coalition. And it's the coalition is against the expansion of the U.S. anti-dumping and countervailing duty laws against China, not for Chinese companies, but for U.S. importers and U.S. downstream producers. Mm -hmm. um, the, uh, the truth is that what's really happening is these uh, – and this I understand you're into supply chain generally – um, it's really also the anti-dumping orders on raw materials. Solar cells is close to this, but two days ago, um, Commerce issued a final determination involving hardwood plywood and um, raised the rates to 59% by using the surrogate country of Bulgaria and saying that's the country we look at for to compare the Chinese uh, consumption factors. So we're at 59%. We wipe all hardwood plywood from China out of the U.S., but in doing so, what have we hit? We've hit all the U.S. producers of doors, windows, furniture in the United States because anybody producing wood products in the United States was using the cheaper Chinese hardwood plywood. Now these companies either have to shut their production facilities and move to China or find some other way to get around it. But it's going to um, – and the other problem they're going to have is that in the downstream markets, the Chinese will ship in uh, uh, lower-cost uh, products because they have access to the cheaper raw material. It seems like a completely random exercise, uh, the way in which the Commerce Department picks its reference country. I mean, what is the Commerce Department's rationale for picking Indonesia in one case, for picking Bulgaria in another? I don't understand how they make that choice. Well, they they basically use what is called a comparable economic countries, and um, they um, – basically are looking at um, uh, for um, a gross domestic product but also um, uh, per person how much the ca how much is produced in each country India used to be the surrogate country and that led to some s stability because at least India had some good numbers they were relatively close to China and then what happened was two three years ago um, a commerce decided all of a sudden well China is doing better than India so we're no longer looking at India we're going to look at five different countries Indonesia Philippines uh, Bulgaria is, is two or three of them. One is a, uh, Colombia, where they've even looked at. So they look at all these different countries, and that, of course, means that um, the decisions are arbitrary and capricious by de definition. There is so much discretion to the Commerce Department that there's absolutely no relationship to reality. This is Alice in Wonderland. Hmm. Now, going back again to you asked, what, what are we going to do about this? Um, this importers coalition that we put together is lobbying for four points. Uh, number one, in the U.S.-China WTO agreement and the WTO agreement with China, the accession agreement, China is supposed to be made a market economy country by 2016, specifically November 2016. There is not a peep out of Washington about doing this. If they, China becomes a market economy, then commerce will have to determine whether the uh, um, uh, companies in China are really dumping or not because they will have to use actual price and cost in China. So we're lobbying for that. We're lobbying for that not for the Chinese, but we're lobbying so that uh, the U.S. importer will know if the Chinese company is truly dumping or not. So you're, lo you're we'll lobbying know. for c c China to be declared a market economy by that time. You're, on, yeah. you're in favor of that idea. Pursuant um, to the agreement that the United States has signed, yes. And is there out there a definitive definition of what constitutes a market economy and some actual tests that China can meet in November of 2016 to make that declaration? Well, yes, there is in the statute uh, basically uh, definitions of market economy and non-market economy. But you have to understand, 
this is not a legal decision. The Commerce Department and the U.S. government may try to use that as a cover. It is a political decision. How do we know? Because that's how Russia graduated to become a market economy. How did Russia graduate to become a market economy? It was a non-market economy just like China. 911. Uh, President Bush decided he needed to have Russian bases to attack Afghanistan. President Putin told President Bush, make me a market economy under the dumping law. Secretary Evans of Commerce then flew into Moscow, said, looks like a market economy to me, and Russia all of a sudden became a market economy. Ukraine became a market economy because of the Orange Revolution. By the way, when Russia got market economy, the rumors I had heard in Washington, D.C., which was Ju Ranji, which was the number two guy in China at that time, went through the roof, saying, how could Russia become a market economy before China? It's a political decision. Yeah, so there is no strict rule. There's no little book you could open and, and see in hard, cold print the actual definition of a market economy that must be met in clear language. It seems like it can just be done with a wave of a, a magic wand. Now, let me say that there is a definition. If you go into the dumping law, um, I can even provide you there are definitions of what a market economies and non-market economies are. But in truth, it's not the definition that matters. What matters is politics. And the other side of it, of course, is now – see, what happened in the original U.S.-China um, uh, WTO negotiations under Charlene Barshevsky, there was a trade-off. And that trade-off resulted in the United States saying uh, to China, in effect, non-negotiable demand. You will be a non-market economy for 15 years. Under the treaty provision, commerce has the right to make China a market economy before 2016, but pursuant to the treaty, it should do it by 2016 at the latest. Whether that will happen or not, I don't know. And so it really is up to Congress. The other thing that we're in this coalition to pull you back to the importers coalition is we're also lobbying against retroactive liability for U.S. importers. Um, re retroactive liability has been a huge problem. We are the only country in the world that has retroactive liability, which means when you um, import a product into the United States under a dumping order or a countervailing duty order, you don't post the anti-dumping duty or the countervailing duty as a U.S. importer. You post the cash deposit. The actual dumping duty or countervailing duty is determined during a review investigation, which can take years later. If the rate goes up, you, the U.S. importer, are retroactively liable for the difference plus interest, and it literally can and does lead to bankruptcy for many U.S. companies. So this money is sitting in some bank account somewhere that can't be touched by the importer until it's determined exactly how much they owe. Yeah, it's kept in trust basically by the U.S. government, by the Customs Service. And what happens, it suspends liquidation. Liquidation is a technical term under customs law, and that is when the customs service actually determines how much you, the importer, will owe. When the Commerce Department issues its preliminary determination and initial investigation, it suspends liquidation, which means customs, you will not tell the importers how much they actually owe until we have a review investigation and we determine how much is owed during this specific time period. Mm -hmm. And the real problem is rates can go up through the roof. I've got cases now where rates have gone from zero to 157%, and through no fault of the importer, the Chinese company played around. But the importer is the one who got the got killed. So importing under um, um, uh, an anti-dumping or countervailing duty order for a U.S. company is like importing a loaded bomb or importing cancer. You never know uh, what's going to happen. And that also means that 
uh, in steel cases, for instance, all the petitioners have to do is file a petition, and no U.S. importer is going to continue importing once the preliminary determination comes out of commerce because they're too worried about retroactive liability. And the fact that since the Commerce Department is not calculating actual dumping rates in, in China, um, no one knows uh, um, uh, what number Commerce will come up with. And you, the importer record, are liable for the difference plus interest. Now, you talk about this as a political issue. Is, is the Department of Commerce under pressure from American industrial interests or labor unions or whatever to maintain the status quo? Yes, very much so. Um, the U.S. steel industry, the unions have been lobbying very hard to keep China to be very, very tough on trade law, uh, very tough on anti-dumping and countervailing duty um, uh, investigations. Um, in the uh, some in the Doha round, the WTO round, the first and the first meeting was here in Seattle, and the U.S. government took the position that there would be no changes to the anti-dumping and countervailing duty laws at all. Uh, the rest of the world said, uh, no, uh, if that's the U.S. position, there is no Doha around. So now there are, they're negotiating it, but I don't think it's going anywhere. Um, that's the point. The U.S. government is under tremendous pressure, especially from the steel industry. And um, the steel industry has been lobbying Congress um, uh, for, these, um, for tough anti-dumping and countervailing duty laws since I got into trade law in 1980. Um, by the way, has it worked? I mean, one of the biggest companies lobbying for tough anti-dumping and countervailing duty laws is Bethlehem Steel. And when I got out of law school, I worked for a year for a law firm in Washington, D.C. in 79 to 80. I oh, know, 78 to 79, was so long ago. And I worked for Bethlehem Steel Shipbuilding, and I visited Sparrows Point in Bethlehem Steel. Um, and they said – I can remember having a party meeting a guy from Bethlehem Steel in 79 saying to me, all we care about is – hitting the imports, what are we going to do? So they brought all these anti-dumping and countervailing duty laws. They've had protection for probably 40 years, and how's the steel industry doing today? Bethlehem Steel, their factories are now greenfields. It doesn't work. That's the other problem. The anti-dumping and the countervailing duty law don't work. They don't solve the problem. Yeah. And so um, as one uh, trade lawyer once mentioned in testimony before Congress, um, how can you put up walls against unstoppable waves of imports? And that's what you've really got going on here. And so um, it, it, the lobbying, though, is so much pressure on the U.S. Congress. And, you know, you don't want to look like you're being uh, um, uh, um, trying to do something for the Chinese. So you, a congressman or senator, have to be very, very tough on the trade laws. The problem is, again, is that um, uh, what many congressmen and senators don't realize is that the companies paying the dumping and the countervailing duty, duties are their own constituents. It's the companies in their states that are paying dumping and countervailing duties, not the Chinese. Um, are the U.S. policies on countervailing duties and anti-dumping considered by other WTO members to be in violation of WTO rules? Sure. All the time. Um, the U.S. is being taken to the WTO all the time. The United States is taking China to the WTO all the time. So there's obvious there's big fights over stuff like zeroing, which is how you do calculations in the dumping law, and other things. Um, so there's always fights with the, between the various countries as to the implementation of the anti-dumping and countervailing duty law. So it's very common. Uh, I just mentioned there's a very interesting recent case against washing machines against Korea. 
and the Korean government is taking the United States to the WTO over its calculating of dumping rates in that case. And the Chinese have now indicated to the WTO that they want to be part of those negotiations or part of the proceedings. So it's kind of interesting. Is this to some extent an empty exercise, though? Let's say they take the United States to the WTO or the United States takes another country to the WTO and they lose the case. It's, it's adjudicated against the United States. And yet it just goes on as business as usual, does it not? I mean, the United States doesn't say, oh, my goodness, well, it, we lost that case. We better change our policy. Well, it basically changes somewhat. And it'll make some uh, – for instance, the issue of zeroing, which is commerce um, basically it would be looking at sale-by-sale -sale decisions and making its calculation of the dumping rate. And in some cases, you'd have like minus 30 percent. So in determining the average cash deposit rate, and take, instead of taking that minus 30 percent and um, uh, averaging with a plus 30 percent, commerce would zero, which means the minus 30 becomes zero. As a result of that, what happens is commerce can create dumping when there is no dumping. And that's one reason they've been taking that to the court and fighting that at the WTO uh, really hard. And now the United States government is changing its policy in initial investigations. They've done away with zeroing. They're probably on the verge of doing away with zeroing in the reviews. That's being fought out. But it's also been fought at the WTO level. So, yes, over time things will change. But let's put it um, the shoe on the other foot. Um, the United States brought a um, um, huge WTO case on dumping and countervail against China for GOES, grain-oriented electrical steel. And um, the United States was exporting GOES to China. And the Chinese came up with their own calculations, and the effect was to throw the U.S. companies out of the Chinese market. Um, the United States went to the WTO. It's been going on for two, three, four years, and finally the WTO rules against China. The Chinese adjust the rates a little bit, and um, just recently, and it's up on my blog, uschinatradewar.com, you can follow it. But um, the Chinese adjust it. The U.S. government is screaming about it. But yesterday, what happened? The U.S. GOES producers, the U.S. producers of grain-oriented electrical steel, came in and filed their own dumping and countervailing duty case against China. So what happened is the Chinese, just following the United States and looking just like a mirror image of the United States, used the, the dumping and the countervailing duties, the period it would take for the WTO to rule against them, to re-energize their inner industry and to get up their quality and goes, and now they're exporting to the United States. Well, let me just bring this back to finish up to get back to the solar products and the polysilicon issue, I guess. So what has China has done in the 6.5% tariff on materials from U.S. poly? Silicon suppliers on top of a 57% anti-dumping rate, all of that is in answer to the U.S. treatment of Chinese solar materials, correct? Exactly. So are, and, we, um, are we in kind of a simmering trade war that most of the public doesn't even know about? Is this going on You're kind of under the radar right now? Yes, I think we are. But it's, again, what I would say, it's, it's not a huge trade war, but it's a, definitely a trade war. And um, that was the reason I wrote my blog was the solar cells case is so different from many other cases because this was the first time where um, we could see a situation where the United States throws a rock and the Chinese come back and throw one right back. And so – and this case was pretty darn obvious. Um, also, the United States basically – if you hear congressmen and senators, the government talk about – they scream, it's retaliation by the Chinese to our case that we brought. Well, the Chinese have something called a public interest standard. 
we in the United States do not have a public interest standard. The EC, for instance, in their anti-dumping and countervailing duty laws, do have a public interest standard, although it's called the community interest. It was that public interest standard that led and forced the EC to negotiate a deal with the Chinese. And the EC authorities were very gung-ho against this dumping and countervailing duty cases. But Germany was very opposed, along with a number of other countries, to the case that was bought in the EC. This put tremendous pressure on the EC to negotiate a deal with the Chinese, which they did. And they called off both the polysilicon case in China and the solar cells case in Europe and came up with a negotiated settlement. But in the United States, there is no public interest standard. But there is one in China. And so what happens is it works, and I've been talking to Chinese trade lawyers about this. Um, um, petitions are brought in and filed at the Ministry of Commerce, and the Ministry of Commerce will go back and forth with the petitioners to have them redo uh, the petitions. And then they'll be kept, but they will not be initiated until the Chinese government decides that it's in their public interest to do so. In the United States, when anti-dumping and countervailing duty cases are filed, prior to that, often the petitioners will come in and have draft petitions with Commerce and the ITC. They'll fix it, but the petitioners control the case. So when they file the case, the ITC has to start up. The International Trade Commission has to start up an injury investigation. The Commerce Department has to start up an anti-dumping and countervailing duty investigation. The case has to go forward. There's no way on public interest grounds that the United States uh, can stop the case. But in China, that's not true. So what happened was the polysilicon industry in China is injured. They're very hurt by imports. Uh, but at the Jiangsu provincial level, and it's the provincial government level outside of Shanghai, there was an internal struggle. And the struggle was between the polysilicon producers and the solar cell producers. The Chinese solar cell producers were saying to the Jiangsu government, you've got to understand, guys, hey, we're getting hammered by the United States. Don't hammer us on the raw material, too. So please don't go ahead with this polysilicon case. But then what happened is when uh, um, the United States got further and further along with its investigation, and it, um, it became very apparent to the Chinese that the United States was going to try and throw all Chinese solar cells out of the United States. I mean, the dumping rates are 31 to 250 percent in the United States on solar cells. The countervailing duty rate originally was only 3 percent after all the noise about subsidies. Now it's 15 percent. So we're talking much higher rates in the United States than in China. And so what happened then, um, uh, the, uh, um, um, when the Chinese government saw that it was going to, the U.S. was going to proceed forward and really smash the Chinese in this case, the Chinese initiated their own investigation and brought the polysilicon case against the United States. I just wanted to say to you, because you're talking about supply chains here, mm -hmm. I want to run through just about five products that your listeners have to watch out for. One of before is hardwood plywood. That's going to affect all the downstream producers of wood products. Aluminum extrusions is a huge problem. The Commerce Department has expanded it to cover curtain walls, the sides of buildings, auto parts. If you're importing any aluminum products from China, you have to be very careful. Glycine, chemicals, raw materials going into this. Another case was just filed two days ago, a monosodium glutinate from China. Uh, uh, wood flooring. Um, so there's so many cases going on now against China that if you're involved in importing products, you really have to be aware of the situation. Well, thank you so much for helping to make us aware of the situation, William Perry. I really appreciate your time and hope to speak to you again on this. In the meantime, once again, thanks for your time and your insights. 
Thank you very much. That was attorney William Perry of Dorsey and Whitney with some interesting insights into U.S. trade policy. Hope you enjoyed the show. I'm Bob Bowman, managing editor of Supply Chain Brain. We're online at www.supplychainbrain.com where we post a new episode of this podcast for streaming or downloading every Friday. You can also read my Think Tank blog, watch over 1,000 videos, and access all of our other content, including the digital edition of our magazine. Look for us on Facebook and LinkedIn, and follow us on Twitter, at SCBrain. See you next time.